Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Abigail Van Buren has for years had the Dear Abby column in many newspapers around our country. And her daughter, now Jean Phillips, has taken that over. There was a a writer who wrote into the column, and I'm going to read it to you. Dear Abby, I'm in love, and I'm having an affair with two different women. I can't marry them both. Please tell me what to do, but don't give me any of that morality stuff. Abby's answer is classic. Dear sir... The only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. (laughs) Well, adultery is a weed in the garden of marriage. And as you've already guessed by now, we're in that commandment. That we find in verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Why? Because adultery will choke out the vital life of a relationship. Maybe you're thinking, skip this commandment has nothing to do with me. My marriage is solid. We're doing great. We love each other madly. And that's great. It's wonderful. Then simply let this message be preventative maintenance. But... I will add this piece of advice. Be careful when you boast. Everybody, everyone is vulnerable to some degree to these temptations. Men and women. Men and women. And even Paul writes in the New Testament, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It could be, I don't know, but it could be that some in hearing this message, are currently in the middle of an affair. You're having one right now. Or you're contemplating one. And maybe you've rationalized it by saying, well, I'm the kind of a person that just, I can't be satisfied with one person. Some years ago, a talk show host was interviewing Ricardo Montalban. Remember him? You rock fantastic. (laughs) And they were, uh, he played, he had played many romantic roles in movies. And the talk show host asked him, what makes a great lover? His answer was surprising, at least to that crowd. He said, a great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman For the entire lifetime and can be satisfied with one woman his entire lifetime. It's not someone who goes from woman to woman. Any dog can do that. Close quote. And yet, in our culture, we have seemed to elevate dog-like behavior. In sports heroes, in musicians, in actors and actresses, and even in politicians. Promiscuity is the subject of songs, movies, primetime television. In fact, I think these days the only unpopular thing to be is a virgin. 
Recently, the British, or not British, Brazilian supermodel Giselle was in an interview with a newspaper, and she said, today, no one is a virgin when they get married. And she said to the newspaper, when the church made those laws centuries ago, well, women were expected to be virgins. First of all, the church didn't make up these laws. These predate the existence of any church. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Here's God's top ten list. But C.S. Lewis was right when he said, the most unpopular of all of God's laws is chastity. Now, this is how I'd like us to think about the Ten Commandments. We can think of all of them this way, but more particular, this one. Think of the commandments as a protective hedge for your life. In fact, did you know the ancient Jews used to have a term for the law? They called it Sayag HaTorah, the fence of the law, that God constructed a hedge around our lives to protect us. So think of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. That's God building a protective fence around the family. Or the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's God building a protective hedge around life. Or this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. That's God building that protective hedge around a marriage relationship. And I bring it up because people will notice that the Ten Commandments seem to be negative. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. You shall not do the other thing as if God's all about restriction. Understand that the restriction is for a positive reason, not a negative. Let's say that you were walking down a hallway and you saw a door and a sign that said, Keep out. And you look at that and you go, why should I? I don't want to keep out. What are they hiding? Well, friend, keep reading further. Keep out. Danger. Explosives. Oh, that tells the whole story. The reason there's the negative commandment on the door is so that you don't walk through the door and blow yourself up to smithereens. So when God says, don't do this. It's because I love you. Don't do that. It's because I love you. I want the very best for you. So let's read that commandment again, and then let's go through it this morning and the rest of our time. Verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Why is that there? Well, obviously, God knew it was going to be a problem. Obviously, God knew that one of the greatest temptations we would face in humanity would be in this area. Hence, it's in God's top ten list. It's a popular sin. That's the first point I want to make, that this sin, adultery, is fashionable socially. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I bet some of you have, that the rating system in Hollywood has changed. There can be the theme of promiscuity, the theme of adultery, the theme of homosexuality. There can be even in some cases frontal nudity, and it will get a PG-13 rating. Violence seems to always get an R rating. That's because Hollywood is saying violence is always bad. Promiscuity is okay. It's not as bad. It's fashionable socially. 
Now, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It was a problem with the children of Israel. They were in the land of Canaan and they confronted a very sensual worship system, the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. They were worshipped by the sexual act. In fact, it got so bad that the prophet Amos in chapter two of his book writes, father and son used the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lied down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. By the time we get here, Exodus chapter 20, this is the era of the law of Moses. And not only are these commandments given, but we read further and we understand in the next chapter that the the punishment for breaking this commandment is capital punishment. It's stoning to death. Now, of course, that doesn't occur today and I'm not advocating. Can you imagine, though, if that were the case? There'd be rock piles everywhere in our country, wouldn't there be? By the time we get closer to the New Testament era, the Greek times, the Greek pagans believed that sex was simply a physical act with no moral attachment whatsoever. In fact, the Greeks even coined a word to describe it. Eros was their term. Our word erotic comes from the Greek word eros. The word eros at its root means to grasp. And the idea of the word is to reach For something to satisfy your own need. Erotic love, then, in its original intent, is all about oneself. It's never about the other person. That's why it's better translated lust. Often when people say, we love each other, what they really mean is we lust each other. It's all erotic. Now, that's then, but today, sexual promiscuity is fashionable before marriage. And unfortunately, during marriage, it shouldn't really surprise us because our Lord Jesus said that the last days would be similar to the days of Noah and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Both of those were marked with sexual promiscuity, both heterosexual and homosexual. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. Listen to this recent little interview words spoken by 23 year old actress. Actress Jessica Alba, she said that she likes the idea of being intimate with several people, with many different people, because she says she likes to experiment with sex. As many people as she can. James Patterson and Peter Kim did research a number of years ago. Boy, were they contemporary, though. They noted that 49 percent of Americans consider Having an affair. But listen to this. Only 31% actually do. Did you hear that? Only one third do. That's all. Just a third do it. Moreover, they said today, a majority of Americans, 62%, think there's nothing morally wrong with the affairs they're having. Very similar then to the ancient Greek thinking that it's a physical act with no moral attachment whatsoever. There's even agencies out there that will provide alibis. I found one called the alibi agency. They will provide the perfect alibi for your spouse if you want to have an affair. 
And that includes here's their services. They'll send invitations to events you'll never attend. They'll provide booking forms to your home, make phone calls to your spouse, posing as a secretary or a hotel manager, confirming your conference coming up. And they'll even provide a false phone number so that if your spouse wants to check on you, they'll answer it as if they're the hotel and you'll hear them paging you. The alibi agency. Now, folks, I wish I could say that's just out there in the world. But the problem is also, unfortunately, in the church, much of our time in counseling is spent dealing with problems with this area. I spoke to a pastor this week in another state. He said, Skip, a full 90 percent of my time is spent dealing with people who have erred in this area. And, And that's why there are so many warnings about it throughout the Bible. Again, what seems to be a negative warning is for a positive reason. You look at Samson and David and Absalom and the temptation Joseph faced. We understand this truth that adultery is fashionable socially. Something I want you to look at, though, and that is that adultery is formed inwardly. It's not an outward act only. It's something that starts inwardly. Now, I know it says, and I want you to notice it with me. I actually want you to look at the verse. You shall not commit adultery. So you could read that and infer from reading this in English that it is limited only to the action, the act. The problem, you might say, is only in the act. You shall not commit adultery. In Hebrew... The sentence is even shorter. There's only two words. It reads, lo na'af. Lo na'af. It means no adultery. And though it could speak about a single act, because it's in the Hebrew imperfect tense, it suggests a process. A process. So where does it all begin? It begins right here in the mind. Or as the ancients refer to it, the heart. In the heart. I'd like you to go with me to the New Testament. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Seems that we've been going back and forth a lot to the Sermon on the Mount because the Lord Jesus takes some of the laws of the Ten Commandments and bumps them up to a higher level, raises the bar, so to speak. Matthew chapter 5. There's two verses I want to look at, and this is the this is the part of Jesus' sermon. When all of the men in the audience must have dropped their beards, their jaws. Because listen to what he says. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now he quotes the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's why those guys went. Because they were busted. What Jesus is saying is that the heart is the soil where the weed begins to grow. It's inward. Now look at verse 28. Look at the word look. That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? It says, whoever looks at a woman. That doesn't mean a glance. That means a gaze. It means a gaze. It's a present participle. 
It's a continual process. He's not speaking about the unavoidable temptation of a girl walking by and you can't help but see her because she's in your purview. It's not the first take. It's the double take he's referring to. It's the gaze that's following her as she moves through the entire room. Whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Think of David. You know the story. One night he's out on his rooftop and he's looking over Jerusalem and he got an eyeful that night. Because there was a girl right down the street in open view who was bathing on the rooftop. And you know what David should have done. He should have thought, oh, my goodness, I'm out of here. Walked right back inside the house. David, it seemed, cleared his eyes and looked down there a little more carefully and gazed and then entertained and imagined what might happen. And then he, being the king, had the power to make it happen. So he sent for her. But it began inwardly with that look. Sex experts today will say, whatever goes on in your mind is your business. If it doesn't hurt anybody and it's confined to your own imagination, your own fantasies, it doesn't matter. Boy, is that a lie. Every man knows the battle is won or lost in the mind. And the mind allowing the eyes to gaze or not to gaze. I was talking to a guy years ago and... I just noticed that whenever a girl entered the room, his head kept bobbing around. So I, I made mention of that. And he said, oh, look, I'm just admiring God's creation, pastor. I said, it's funny. I don't see you looking at trees that way. We have all sorts of justification, do we not? For allowing the eyes to have their way. So it's fashionable socially. It's formed inwardly. Third thing I want to make note of is it's fatal relationally. Now, I know that's a strong word, fatal, but again, in the Old Testament context, if they did this, they were stoned to death. They were killed. It was capital punishment. But there are certainly consequences short of death. Let me remind you of a few. This sin can damage you spiritually. You lose peace, you lose joy, you lose the fellowship with God that brought all that in the first place. Or even worse, a continued decision down this road without any remorse, without any repentance, indicates that the person, I don't care what they claim, is not saved. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the ninth verse, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. That pathway of decisions that brings no remorse, no change, no repentance can damage you spiritually. It can also damage you physically. Listen, to be loose and promiscuous invites disease, sexually transmitted disease. And some can last a lifetime and bring death. 
There's syphilis, there's chlamydia, there's gonorrhea, there's the AIDS virus. And Solomon even writes about this, I believe, when he's instructing his son in Proverbs chapter 5 to stay away from women who are loose and keep your eyes and mind focused on spiritual things. And he tells them about the consequences that could follow. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Until you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. Very graphic description of the ravages of sexually transmitted disease. It can damage you spiritually, can damage you physically, it can certainly damage you emotionally. The anxiety, the guilt that is produced from all of the months of deceit or years of deceit uh, that an affair has to have with it. And it's sad that couples involved in the deceit of an affair can rationalize and their thinking becomes so warped that they come to a place where they think, well, I'll marry that person then. I'll start all over. We're having an affair, but we're going to start all over. I'm going to marry her or marry him. Think of what you're marrying. You're marrying someone who's deceived their spouse. What chances do you think this new relationship is going to have to last when that person has been habitually deceiving their former spouse. Oh, that's a good foundation for a permanent relationship. It can also damage your family, your mate, your kids. You lost all of their trust. It's eroded in an instant. Everything you've worked hard to build is gone. Ask David. David committed adultery. He was certainly forgiven for it. He was remorseful. God forgave him of his sins and the prophet said that that would happen. But look what happened afterwards. Absalom, his son, Amnon, his other son, both fell into the same pattern of sin that their father did. You see, it's more than the sex. It's the months of deception, the pain of betrayal. USA Today put out this little article quoting Fred Humphrey, American president of the Association of Marriage and Family. The article says, experts say... Extramarital affairs rarely have happy endings. Quoting Humphrey, half the married couples either divorce or separate when one spouse learns of the other's affair. Others anguish over trying to salvage the relationship. Learning about it results in instant pain and anger. And then there'll always be a barrier to some extent. So it'll damage you spiritually, physically, emotionally. It'll damage your family. Something else, it'll damage the community. I'm thinking now of the community of believers. Paul said when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. Or look at it this way. Every single obedient Christian strengthens our cause, strengthens the church. Every disobedient Christian weakens the church. And then when unbelievers are contemplating, should I become a Christian or not? And they look inside the church and they say, well, there's no difference. Why should I become one of them? There's no change. What, what, what is there to attract me to something that is no different at all than my lifestyle? It damages the community. Nathan, the prophet, said to David, who sinned with this, oh, yes, you are forgiven, king, but... You have given the enemies of the Lord great opportunity to blaspheme. This is what I'm trying to say. This sin is very expensive. 
Hollywood lies to you. Buy now, pay later. You will pay. And it's very expensive. Very expensive. Something else under this banner of being fatal relationally. It displeases God primarily. I should have really put that at the first. I left it to the last because typically God is the last one people think about when they have an affair. And I dare say if he was the first one they think about, they may not have the affair. Because I think purity begins with loyalty. It begins with loyalty. David said in Psalm 51, against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I've always marveled that good carpenters can hit a nail dead on with the head of their hammer. And sometimes drive it all the way into the wood with one hit and they'll put that hammer way back. And it's almost as if they have a a magical spell on the nail. They can hold it upright, move their hands away. And while it's still standing up before it falls, drive it into the wood. Ask a carpenter the secret and they will tell you the secret is keeping your eye on the nail, not on the hands that hold the nail. Because if you put your eye on your thumb, you'll hit it. You'll hit whatever you look at. That's the way life is. If your aim is the Lord, your mark is him. And that relationship of loyalty, purity will follow. You see, the commandment, the seventh commandment can be traced all the way back to the first commandment. I am the Lord, your God. You will have no other gods before me. Adultery is idolatry. It's another God. It begins with being loyal to him. So it's fashionable socially. It's formed inwardly. It's fatal relationally. And I need to I need to put this now. It's forgivable. Ultimately. See, right about now, we need to be reminded of that beautiful verse in first John, chapter one, verse nine. It says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all. Don't leave that word out. Not some, but all unrighteousness. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin. But it's sin, you say. You're right. That's why it's forgivable. Because it's sin. God's in the business of forgiving sin. Woman was caught in adultery, brought to Jesus. The leaders wanted to stone her. Jesus said, go ahead. Whoever here is without the sin, throw the first rock. It's interesting. It says Jesus stooped on the ground and wrote something in the dust. I don't know what he wrote. I've always loved the thought that maybe he was writing their names and the secret sins that they thought nobody knew about. Okay, let's see here. Shlomo. He's a thief. Let's see. David. Mm, Lust. And then he said, go ahead, boys, throw the rocks. And they Drop those stones like hot potatoes, hightailed it out of there. Woman, where are your accusers? I have none, sir. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Paul writes to the Corinthian church about a man in their church who was involved in sexual sin of a gross sort, and the church just winked at it. They didn't do anything about it. They were very tolerant. So Paul said, okay, listen carefully. This is 1 Corinthians. 
When you gather together as a church, kick that person out. Excommunicate him. Have no fellowship at all with him. Move him out of your midst. And then he explains why. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. So he instructs them to remove him from their fellowship. And they did. They disfellowshipped him. But he writes 2 Corinthians where that unrepentant person has now repented and wants to get back in the church. And Paul writes a letter and says, Now instead, you ought rather to forgive and to comfort him. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin, and God's grace is bigger than any sin. Paul said to the Romans, where sin abound, grace abounds much more. I've seen broken marriages as a result of this sin. When the couple decides after this horrible incident to humble themselves and seek the Lord and seek forgiveness, that their marriage is even stronger than before. Only by God's grace. Only by God's grace. Fifth and finally, it's fixable presently. And this is where I want to end this morning. I don't want to end with saying it's really bad, really, really bad, but it's forgivable. What I'd like to end on is this thought. It is preventable. It's fixable right now. Right now. And I want to show you how. Back in Matthew chapter 5. If you think they dropped their jaws in those two verses, wait till you hear what he says next. Look at it all together. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, here's the solution. You ready? It's going to sound gross. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, reading that, you say, that's gross. How is that a solution? That's the intended effect. Sin ought to gross you out. And this sin ought to make you feel so gross that that's the response. It's gross. What is he saying? He's saying deal radically with sin. He's not saying go really pluck your eye out when you get home, cut your hand off. You don't believe that. If you did, there'd be anatomical changes every week. We obviously know that this is figurative. He's saying this gross sin must be dealt with radically. I'll paraphrase it as Martin Luther did. He said, you can't stop birds flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. It's fixable. It's preventable. And here's how. Number one, kill the weeds. Number two, cultivate the flowers. Kill the weeds, cultivate the flowers. Kill the weeds, that's those two verses that we just read. If you're married and you're emotionally attached to some other person, you're getting too familiar, too close, too intimate, kill it. Sever the relationship. Sever it. Well, I don't want to just sever it. I want to be polite. Don't be polite. Be mean if you have to. You say, you have any scriptural proof for that? Yep, Joseph. Joseph, the beautiful woman 
ignored by her husband, wanted to have sex with him. She just said, came around and said, lie with me, go to bed with me. Now, what if Joseph would have said, I don't want to be impolite. I want to be a good witness. Let me share with you the four spiritual laws. You know what he did? He, he left. He literally streaked out of the room. She was holding his robe. He fled naked. Better to flee naked than to stay there. Sever it. Kill the weeds. That means you kill and restrict certain activities. You go into a store, don't go by the magazine racks. Don't get on the Internet alone if that's a problem. Don't go to certain channels that are available on your TV set. Don't be a dartboard for the enemy. The Bible says concerning temptation, flee temptation. And let me add something to that. Not, I'm trying to add anything to the Bible, but when you flee temptation, don't leave the devil your forwarding address. I'm out of here, devil. I bind you. By the way, here's my phone number, address. Later on, we'll talk. I got a letter some years back. It was very disturbing. I opened it up. It was from a gal. I don't know who exactly. I don't remember. Don't. Um, know how old, but she wrote very honestly. She said, I have a problem coming to church. I lust after you. Here's my phone number. I need spiritual counsel. You think I called her? Absolutely not. First thing I did is call my wife, told her what the letter said. Second thing I did is give it to my secretary and said, call her. Talk to her. Lovingly try to restore whatever she's dealing with. Third thing I did is told all my staff pastors about what was going on. Don't become a dartboard. So kill the weeds. Number two, cultivate the garden. If you are married, understand that marriages do not collapse overnight. If you ever see a couple suddenly divorce, it wasn't sudden. There's been a long erosion for a period of time that has eroded that relationship. So cultivate the flowers. Meeting each other's emotional needs, finding out how to cause each other to grow and to feel satisfied with your life's partner. It might mean something simple like writing a letter describing how you felt the day you got married. You say, oh, I was scared. But so wonderful, so much in love, I couldn't wait. Write that down. Give that letter to your spouse. Renew your vows over dinner or a public ceremony, even a lot of ways to do that. And I say satisfy each other's needs emotionally, spiritually and physically. Paul's very candid in First Corinthians seven. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time. So they can give themselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, they should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. I found something I wanted to share with you in closing. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources tells us that every single year, 17,000 deer are killed on the state highway system by motorists. That's an alarming amount of animals that are killed by motorists. 
question is why? Here's their report. In November, they're concentrating almost exclusively on reproductive activities and are a lot less wary than they normally would be. You know why I'm sharing that with you is because deer aren't the only ones destroyed by a preoccupation with sex. Every fall, 17,000 deer die because they're preoccupied with sex. Every day, thousands of Americans, friends, family members are killed in a number of ways relationally because of this. Abigail Van Buren was right. The only difference between animals and humans is morality. So, why live like an animal? You're a child of God. You're a son and daughter of the living God. The level that God wants you to live at. The reason that God put a hedge of protection around the marriage and said, don't commit adultery, isn't so you go, I can't believe God's so restrictive. I thank Him that He's warning me and you of the danger. So that our lives would be full and blessed and satisfied. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan. Marriage was your idea. It was your invention. Sexual activity was your idea. It was your invention. But that which is God-given must certainly be God-guided. So, Father, we thank you for these commandments. What appear to some to be negative are really positive. Lord, I pray that your church would walk in holiness, walk in repentance, and not fall among the number of the fallen and slain. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ that can cleanse a man or a woman from all sin. Thank you for that fountain of blood. You put this commandment here because you know it's a problem. The problem begins not in the action, but in the heart, the mind, the thought life. May we guard that. May we be renewed in our minds. Strengthen us. Strengthen your flock. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.